0: Welcome to the Sui Generis Show, your unique perspective on all things related to your civil rights and the criminal injustice system. With Eric Merrill, I'm attorney Brian Jones, criminal defense and civil rights warrior. Today in segment one, we'll be talking about the United States District Court for the Southern District of Ohio's brand new injunction against the Columbus, Ohio Police Department. The United States Department of Justice's investigation into law enforcement agencies across the nation and a new federal charge issued against those responsible in the Ahmad Arbery slay. In segment two, as promised, we'll be looking at part two of our five-part series on roadside field sobriety tests. And in, in particular, we'll be looking at the horizontal gaze nystagmus test. Follow my pen with your eyes. To make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe on Apple iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube. Look to the lawofficeofbrianjones.com and all of our social media outlets for everything you need to know about your civil rights and the criminal injustice system. Erica, did you see in the news this week the new report issued demonstrating that the Columbus Police Department was unprepared for the size and energy of the 2020 protests and a federal judge has agreed to and issued an immediate injunction against the Columbus Police Department limiting their use of force against peaceful protesters.
1: Yes, Brian, I did. And I was wondering when that was going to come up because I heard a lot of rumblings about people being unhappy with the response that the police gave during those attacks and whether or not it was really on purpose. I'm really interested to see what happens during this review. Why did the city initiate an independent review of the police response to the protests?
0: Well, I think this is a really interesting situation, Erica, primarily because while Columbus was not a city where the the causes of the protests originated, it was a very active city. And Columbus has seen on an almost monthly basis, a new officer involved shooting. Now, while national attention isn't really being directed at Columbus, the protests have been consistent and they have been uh, very forceful. City leaders, including the mayor and the former chief of police have put together an independent outside review of the police department in response to the protests that arose after the murders of Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd last year. Now that independent team included the United States Attorney for the Southern District of Ohio, Carter Stewart, and individuals from the Ohio State University's John Glenn College of Public Affairs. Now the study interviewed more than 170 people ranging from protesters to police. And what they found was that the communication within the Columbus Police Department was not effective. Communication between the public and the police department and from the police department to the public was not effective. And even communication between the police department and city officials was not effective. So the report really recommended a complete overhaul of the way that the police department communicates with all the other players in the system. Uh, Officer reported um, officers frequently reported being unable to discern between peaceful protesters and violent protesters and community members reported both physical and mental trauma at the hands of law enforcement so what the what the report really uh, showed was that there is there's a complete lack of communication and a complete lack of understanding of law enforcement's role in keeping the community safe when protests arise and i think the you know, to get back to your question, Erica, why was this initiated? Well, I think it was initiated because while the protests started as a response to those officer-involved shootings in Georgia, in Minnesota, um, I think Columbus's, the CPD reaction to those protests really sowed additional seeds of protest and grew the protest movement because it was so violent as a response. Because their response was so violent, it was so over the top, that now more people are coming out and and, and now protesting the reaction to the protests. And I think the city, both the mayor and the former chief, really understood the need for uh, figuring out why this is happening, particularly with the Columbus Police Department.
1: One interesting part of this I've heard was the restraining order from the judge. Can you give us an idea of what the relationship is between the city's review and the restraining order from the judge?
0: The investigation was initiated by city officials. The investigation was initiated by city officials. It was uh, on their own, at their own impetus, and it, it wasn't imposed upon them. It was a voluntary investigation. But the federal district judge is issuing an order as a part of a lawsuit that was filed by 26 individuals who are accusing the Columbus Police Department and individual law enforcement officers of using excessive force during those protests. Now, this is a privately funded civil lawsuit that seeks damages, injunctions, and uh, you know, injunctions to prevent particular kinds of police behavior. It is separate and apart from the investigation and report, which is a policymaking tool for the government to use. You know, the, the uh, chief of police office, the mayor's office, maybe even the city law director's office will be able to use the information gathered as the result of that report to make things better uh, it, when law enforcement needs to respond to peaceful protests. Now, it'll be used also to kind of shape the narrative around the government really taking accountability for what happened during the summer of 2020. And hopefully it leads to some police reforms. The injunction on the other hand is an imposition, a requirement for the law enforcement community to engage in certain types of behavior and refrain from certain types of behavior. I'm going to guess that that report will be evidence in the lawsuits raised by those 26 plaintiffs.
1: I mean, I guess they had to do something. I mean there's evidence when people are putting lawsuits against the law enforcement agency and it sounds like they really had to start looking into it and you know I I guess I'm wondering is this going to change how they handle protesters in the future so that it's less violent. So what does this restraining order prevent? the Columbus Police Department from doing?
0: Specifically, it restrains the Columbus Police from using pain to punish protesters. It orders them to use peaceful means to disperse peaceful assemblies. um, And it prevents them from dispersing those peaceful assemblies, unless it's become apparent that a protester has committed a violent violation or the protest is blocking traffic actively. It prevents them from using tear gas, pepper spray, flashbang grenades, rubber bullets, wooden pellets, batons, body slams, any kind of physical force or kettling, which is a a crowd control method that involves confining protesters to a very small defined area and then pressuring them in and closing in on them from all sides. The district judge described the behavior of the Columbus police last year as quote, a sad tale of police officers clothed with the awesome power of the government run amok. And I don't think there could be a better description of how the Columbus police behaved last year. Time and time again, what we saw on local news were peaceful protesters being attacked by police officers and even reporters, members of the media being attacked, beaten, pepper sprayed uh, by law enforcement. And that's all documented. That kind of behavior in a democracy is absolutely unacceptable. I guess I should say that kind of behavior is unacceptable. That kind of behavior is anathema to a democracy.
1: I mean, it gets to be so scary when freedom of speech is literally being tampered down by crooked superheroes almost in in that description.
0: You're absolutely right. We have, I, I think our country has really reached a turning point. And as citizens, a decision needs to be made. You know, Voltaire said, I may not agree with what you say, but I will defend to my death your right to say it. And the reality in America today is that people don't believe in that tenet of democracy anymore. You know, there's There are too many people that say, if the police don't want you saying something, they should be able to beat you into silence. And that's just unacceptable in, in, a, in a democracy.
1: I absolutely agree. And I'm really happy to see that they have that restraining order so that people don't have to worry as much. I mean, hopefully they can abide by that and see that they still can have control over a situation without resorting to those barbaric tactics.
0: Well, that's the reality, Erica, is that there are plenty of other tactics that don't involve the use of force, that don't involve the use of violence, to police illegal conduct and keep protests in in a safe and appropriate manner. You know, this is, this is as much about the protester safety as it is about the communities uh, around which the, they are protesting. And the reality is, is that violence begets violence. So if somebody, if a bad apple in the protests acts in a violent manner. You know, what we also saw last year is individuals throwing bricks through windows and protesters turning on them, quarantining them off and turning them over to law enforcement. You know, you don't see that sort of behavior at the law enforcement level. The protesters are kind of policing themselves, but when the police react with violence, start beating people, shoot tear gas, shoot people with rubber bullets, then the reaction changes and people don't care about helping the police anymore. And and coming to that understanding on law enforcement's part is going to be critical to improving this nation across the board. And the United States Department of Justice is looking to do just that in the additional story this week about their new investigation into policing practices in Minneapolis and Louisville, Kentucky. There's also a request for that sort of investigation to happen here in Columbus, Ohio. Did you see these news stories this week, Erica?
1: I mean, I did, and it just seems like it's so timely. I I don't know why it seems to happen quite often where we do these interviews and there are several stories in the news that are similar and really help delineate some very important points in the legal system. So. In this case, what does the Department of Justice have the authority to investigate?
0: The Department of Justice's Civil Rights Division has the authority to investigate and enforce lawful and fair policing through what they call a pattern of practice investigation. Now, They gain that authority from the 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution and then through the entirety of the Bill of Rights. So the 14th Amendment applies all of the other parts of the Constitution to the states. And so the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, ninth, and 10th Amendment are the Bill of Rights. And those are the ones that are really particularly designed to protect the rights that are necessary for a thriving democracy. So the Department of Justice, through the Fourteenth Amendment, has the power to force change on state governments, local governments, and to modify their practices and behaviors because that federal constitution establishes a bare minimum that that all government officials in the United States have to meet.
1: Those are really great points. What I'm so interested in hearing your opinion on today is. You know, what comes next i mean pattern or practice we've heard so many times like in new york city with um, cops that are stopping people of color and you know harassing them basically when they've done nothing wrong i mean we're looking at this with this particular case how is the determination made that a department has pattern or practice
0: The the determination is made after a thorough investigation. And that process will take years. You know, the reality is, is that they're going to unearth police reports, they're going to watch body worn camera footage, they're going to interview individuals both from those particular cases and from the community. This is a broad probing investigation. Um, And the the goal is to identify whether the police in this community, the community being investigated, are policing in a constitutional manner. So the Department of Justice is going to look at stops, searches, arrests, the use of force, the manner and mode of policing, and they're looking for violations of the Fourth Amendment, illegal searches, illegal arrests, arrests for wrongful reasons, discriminatory policing. So arrests, searches, stops for illegal reasons, you know, uh, race, gender, um, sex-based reasons you know, for conducting these police acts if the Department of Justice identifies a pattern or an established practice of violating the Fourth Amendment, violating the First Amendment um, in, in a discriminatory manner, then they will state that as a result of their investigation. The investigations are also looking to identify systemic deficiencies that contribute to that kind of misconduct. So is this, is this pattern of practice something that individual officers have just out of the blue engaged in? Or is this the kind of culture within law enforcement that encourages and persists and grows uh, the kind of, uh, you know, animus towards the citizenry that we see time and time again? You know, is, is this Is this a, a goal that is, established from the top and percolating down through the ranks? Is this a problem with training? That you know, this particular department is not properly training their officers on constitutional per- principles and the protections that people have. You know, all of the people in law enforcement will be uh, contributing to these reports, contributing to these investigations. And at the end, the Department of Justice will ultimately release a report detailing any issues that they've identified and proposing solutions to fix those problems in an effective and sustainable manner.
1: I mean those are all great questions that I know are going to be answered in the future and it sounds like we're making lots of great changes Um, but Really, what power does the Department of Justice have to force changes in policing, if any?
0: So if a local government agency chooses not to cooperate, the Department of Justice has the authority to file a lawsuit on the basis of their findings. And they can use the powers of the court through injunctions and court orders to force the department to make the changes that the Department of Justice is suggesting. You now, it doesn't have to go that way. The Department of Justice can also negotiate with the police department what's called a consent decree. And that consent decree can then be monitored by a federal judge for compliance. And what's a consent decree? Well, it's it's an agreement. It's an agreement between the Department of Justice and the local agency. Where the Department of Justice says, we've identified a problem. You you mentioned, Erica, uh, New York's stop and frisk policy. And the New York Police Department said, all right, we recognize that you have determined, Department of Justice, that this violates the Fourth Amendment of the people walking around New York City. So we're going to stop doing that. We consent, we agree to stop that practice. And then a federal judge will monitor that agency for compliance through the use of reviewing body cam footage and the review of police reports and continued interviews and interactions with the people of the city. My guess is we're going to see these sorts of agreements come out of Minneapolis and Louisville and really any other agency that comes under federal investigation. Because what we've seen time and time again, Erica, is that law enforcement doesn't get it. They are not an invading military force. They are the servants of the people and the people speak through the government. And in this case, the people are speaking through the Department of Justice and saying, your behavior is unacceptable and it needs changed. enforcement, you 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 asked, is there the power to force these changes? Well, absolutely, that power exists. Just ask Sheriff Joe Arpaio um, of Arizona. Uh, Remember that Joe Arpaio came under federal investigation and a federal district court ordered his sheriff's department, the Maricopa County Sheriff's Department, to stop arresting people and detaining them because they had brown skin. Now, Sheriff Joe Arpaio basically told the federal court you can go do what you wanna do, I'm gonna do what I wanna do. And the federal district court had him arrested and prosecuted for contempt of court. So ultimately that uh, that was pardoned by President Trump, but Joe Arpaio did have to face justice through the federal district court. And any law enforcement agency found to be in violation of consent decrees, can be brought up on contempt proceedings and can have a variety of sanctions, including fines, additional consent orders, additional oversight, all the way up to incarceration for the officials that might refuse to comply with the orders.
1: Well, I guess that showed him. I mean, it sucks that he ended up getting off later on with President Trump, but I mean, there are some consequences, and it's it's good that they can see that when they go against what is put forth by the Department of Justice.
0: I, I agree. That is, you know, that threat hanging out there uh, finally gives some accountability to law enforcement. And the unfortunate reality is is the the head of those systems are generally the ones that reap those consequences rather than the individual line officers. And, And I have said it once, I have said it dozens of times on this program, Erica, policing in America will not change until police in America are treated like any other person. And if they commit a crime, they should be arrested if they if there's probable cause for them to have committed a crime they should be arrested booked and charges should be investigated and if charges aren't res, aren't appropriate they have all of the same remedies that any other citizen has but they should be treated the same as any other person
1: i'm really glad to hear about these changes that are coming forth <laughs>
0: Three people who are being treated like every other citizen because they are average citizens that were trying to act like police are the individuals that were involved in the slaying of Ahmad Arbery back in 2020. They are now facing, in addition to their state murder charges, federal hate crime and attempted kidnapping charges in, in the Georgia federal court system.
1: Yeah, now I heard about this and... Uh, I'm really glad that they have additional charges for the additional wrongdoing that's allegedly went on. I mean, that's what we should say until it's decided, right?
0: Yeah, we probably should.
1: <laughs> I mean, so why don't you tell us a little bit about you know the state and federal prosecutions happening at the same time? I didn't even know this was possible.
0: Yeah, so state and federal prosecutions can occur at the same time without any issues of violating double jeopardy because the charges themselves are different offenses arising out of the same conduct. In this case, we're talking about murder charges in the state courts and federal weapons and civil rights violations in the federal courts. There isn't a trial date set for the state murder case at this moment, and the state may choose to allow the federal prosecution to continue under the idea that the penalties and consequences of federal conviction are significantly higher than even a state murder conviction may be. And at some point, a state prosecution may be redundant or unnecessary. Now, I'm sure that the family of Ahmaud Arbery want justice and want these individuals to be named murderers in a court of law, uh, as they have been named murderers in the court of public opinion. But there may not be a practical reason to do so. Now, we'll have to wait and see what kind of pressure the family can put on local officials to continue with that prosecution. But there's no federal or state law that prevents both from moving forward at the same time and both from issuing prison sentences for the same conduct. And those sentences being served back to back on top of one another. Now, their defense attorney should absolutely be taking steps to limit their exposure and penalties, but there is nothing their defense attorney can do to stop both of these prosecutions from going forward.
1: Sounds like their attorneys are going to be juggling a lot of different strategies and just dealing with a fire hose of, of allegations coming toward their clients. And it'll be interesting to see how they handle it. Can you tell us what are the penalties for a violation of Title One of the Civil Rights Act of 1968?
0: Yeah, so 18 United States Code 245B2 permits a federal prosecution of anyone who willfully injures, intimidates, or interferes with, or attempts to injure and int- intimidate or interfere with anybody because of his race, color, religion, or national origin. Note that the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Hate Crime Prevention Act of 2019 removed the requirement the victim be engaged in a federally protected activity. So in this case, uh, this law was put into place because of two individuals, uh, Matthew Shepard and James Byrd, who had been, they had been targeted because of their race. Uh, I'm sorry, one because of their race, one because of his sexual orientation. Matthew Shepard was beaten, tortured, and left to die in Laramie, Wyoming for being gay in 1998. And James Byrd was a black man tortured and drugged to death by white supremacists in Texas in, in 1998 as well. Now, both of those individuals uh, were not, uh, their, their assailants were not federally prosecuted because of the uh, requirement that the victim be engaged in a federally protected activity. Now that requirement is gone. So a violation of the statute can result in both a fine for the assailants or a term of imprisonment up to one year. And if bodily injury results or the act of intimidation includes firearms or explosives, uh, the violators can be imprisoned for up to 10 years. If the violation includes kidnapping, which this did, sexual assault or murder, which could also be an option, the violation of the civil rights law can be punished by a life term in prison or the death penalty. Now, in this case, the accused are facing 10 to life federal prison terms. Um, So these individuals are facing very serious penalties for that violation. Um, and, And this is a really stark example of how federal civil rights law has evolved. We frequently think of federal civil rights law as applying specifically to law enforcement, and most of our discussions on this show are about civil rights violations by the government, by police in particular, but this particular code says if you violate somebody's civil rights because of their race, you can go to prison for the rest of your life if that results in a a serious crime.
1: I mean, I think it's great to have those out there protecting people. It's sad that horrible situations have to occur for people to see what's really happening. And in this day and age, it seems to be happening all the time. And actually, if I remember correctly, Last the last interview, you had a quote talking about how many deaths per day are inflicted by the law enforcement officers of America. And you had said that the number was one per day. But I believe there's a correction in that.
0: That's right, Erica. After that show, we went back and we looked at the numbers. And the reality is, is that it's three. It's three deaths per day at the hands of law enforcement. Now, This particular instance, Ahmaud Arbery was not killed at the hands of law enforcement, but rather private citizens who wanted to act as law enforcement uh, and thought that they would be able to get away with this killing uh, because of their status as white men, uh, because of their status as uh, having shot a black man. And it looks like both the state
1: and federal governments are saying to them, no. It's sad that so many people have to die to start changing how we do things and make sure that people are treated fairly because that's what this country is all about.
0: Absolutely, I think that's, I think that's very insightful, Erica.
1: Thank you. So just one more quick question on this particular topic. Um, is the filing of federal charges on top of state charges a significant development? Is this something you see all the time?
0: Well, I think it's a sign that the Department of Justice that you know, seemed to fall asleep under the prior administration is back to actively defending the civil rights of Americans across the country. Uh, you know, the Department of Justice is no longer going to tacitly endorse white supremacy. Uh, they are going to prosecute that kind of um, You know, ignorance and the the DOJ from, you know, four years ago is not the DOJ that you're going to see today. It's a signal to civil rights activists that this administration is going to take its role in protecting civil rights seriously and will be bringing investigations and will be bringing charges in these sorts of cases where racial bias um, and racial attacks are at issue.
1: I mean, that is good to know. I'm glad that this is changing, as I've said a few times in this particular interview.
0: We're going to keep abreast of these and, and all the issues involving the civil rights uh, prosecutions and the expansion of our civil rights, the expansion of the protection of our civil rights in part one throughout the course of this year and, and moving further on into the future. But let's now turn to the second of our five-part look at standardized field sobriety tests by taking a detailed look at one of those tests, the horizontal gaze nystagmus, also known as the HGN, also known as the
1: follow my pen with your eye test. So what exactly is HGN? I've, I've always kind of seen it either in the movies or You hear about it, but I I didn't know what it was called and I don't know what that stands for. What are they trying to do exactly?
0: Nystagmus is an involuntary jerking of the eyes and horizontal gaze nystagmus is the jerking of the eyes as the eye moves from the center point over to the outside. So the eye kind of bounces back and forth Uh, Very subtly. There's actually a very good YouTube video that's available that we will make sure that we link that shows the jerking of the eye. And the reality is, is that that jerking is incredibly subtle. It's a very, very small movement. We're not, we're talking millimeters of movement that the officer is trying to identify on the side of the road, um, you know, generally in uh, very low light conditions nystagmus itself is a condition where the eyes move rapidly and uncontrollably side to side being horizontal up and down being vertical um while circular is is rotary nystagmus it can be present without a perceptible sensation in the person that's experiencing it so a lot of people uh come in and you know we're talking about you know what was their uh what was their stop like and they say, well yeah i definitely passed the pen test because i was able to Follow the pen as the officer moved it across my field of vision, and I have to explain to them that that's not what the officer is looking for. It's not your ability to follow the pen, but it's the ability of it's 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 an involuntary movement, and you can't tell that it's happening. Your vision doesn't change as the result of it, um, and it, you know there's there's really no way for the person being tested to tell that this is happening to them. Um, Law enforcement officers are only interested in that horizontal bouncing as it's described in the NHTSA manual.
1: I think I know the answer to this question, but is alcohol the only reason that you would have this jerking in your eye?
0: Absolutely not. Uh, a variety of head injuries, hereditary condition, conditions, advanced age, sensitivity to light, the, uh, the presence of contact lenses, Um, You know, flashing lights behind the officer can all result in what appear in actual nystagmus and eye behavior that looks like nystagmus. Uh, One that's really frequent that we see all the time is when the officer positions the subject, our, our client, so that they are looking out into traffic. And what inevitably happens is as the officer moves the stimulus, he moves their pen, Across the field of vision, the person almost involuntarily focuses on the pen and then out far, and then in and then out far. And I think it's I think it's a variety of issues that are going on in here. One is uh, an inability to you know, pay that high level attention to one object for what amounts to several minutes over the course of the test, and a, you know, kind of an involuntary self preservation. Uh, of, you know, I'm, this pen is not going to kill me, but that car that's whizzing towards us very well may. Uh, so a variety of issues, both environmental and internal inside the person. Now, because alcohol depresses the nervous system, there's a noticeable effect um, of, of, the, of the body's ability to control these sideway movements in, in a really smooth manner. So what a person's eye should do is they should, you know, kind of just go side to side. Um, But when their alcohol impedes that ability, and so the eye kind of bounces across. And people who display nystagmus aren't aren't really aware of it uh, since it has the least effect on a person's uh, vision of the three kinds of nystagmus that exist. And, and most importantly, Erica, there's a certain percentage of the population that will never display horizontal gaze nystagmus at any point, both due to hereditary and um, inner ear variations. So it's you know, the, the problem with this test and you know, looking for impairment using it is there are a variety of causes of it um, and it's, it's incredibly subtle. Uh, there can be both internal and external causes, um, and the the analysis of it is incredibly subjective.
1: I mean, it sounds like there are too many variables that could go wrong, and to use this to judge somebody's amount of of. Uh, control over their driving. Uh, It it seems like it would be the wrong thing to do. I mean, it could ruin someone's whole life to judge them on this particular test. I mean, what do you think about a driver even submitting to an HGN test? Should they do it?
0: Absolutely not. As, As I said, Erica, there, the, The subjective nature of determining whether there's nystagmus present or not is in and of itself enough reason to deny, to decline taking this test. If an officer has asked you to get out of your vehicle to do field sobriety tests, he or she has already decided to arrest you for suspected drunk driving. And your participation in these roadside balance and coordination tests is only going to create evidence against you. They are incredibly hard. Um, they are almost designed for you to fail them. And the HGN is the easiest one for the officers. You know, predisposition to believe anybody that they've pulled over is certainly too impaired to be driving at this. You know, particular time of night. So you know, there's there's a variety of problems there. And and the reality is there is no punishment for declining to do roadside field sobriety tests. There's no charge that you can be charged with. There's no additional crime that can be alleged. It's important to be firm but polite. No, I will not participate in these tests.
1: I didn't know that. I mean that's great information for people to have because so many people just want to do whatever the law enforcement officer says, because, I mean, obviously they have the authority in the situation and everyone's afraid of getting in trouble. So it's just like when you're a kid and your parent tells you to do something, you do it if they have a certain tone of voice. So I'm so happy that you are informing the public that nothing can happen if they say no to this test. And in fact, the test is going to put them in a really bad Position and it's probably not going to really show the police officer if they are in fact too drunk to drive.
0: Yeah and you know the reality is there's really never a benefit to participating in these tests even as a fully sober person because you're because the number of possible mistakes is so high the ability to pay the most precise attention is is so low the duration that this takes uh, you know we're talking about 15 20 even 30 minutes to go through the entire process you're likely to make a mistake in that in that time frame that is completely innocent and the the judgment of your performance on these tests is entirely subjective in the determination of the officer that's investigating you that already thinks you are drunk because they has pulled you out of your car so this is where our hashtag no walk no talk no blow comes from you just say no politely and let the place that has rules the court determine your responsibility
1: that makes a lot of sense.
0: Well, Erica, I appreciate you joining me, and everybody who's listened to our podcast today, thank you for becoming educated. And in order to uh, stay informed about the federal investigations of local law enforcement agencies, holding police and government accountable, roadside field sobriety testing, and everything you need to know about your constitutional and civil rights, check out the law office of brianjones.com or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash centralohiocriminaldefense. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at TLOBJ, and make sure you look for our hashtags, no walk, no talk, and no blow. We'll be back with a sui generis perspective on the next big thing in civil rights and the criminal injustice system, as well as part three of our field sobriety test deep dive series, looking at the walk and turn test. Erica, my grandfather always told me when we parted ways, don't do anything I wouldn't do, kid. And to that, I add when I separate from any of my friends today, if you do and you get caught, call me. I'll defend your rights as I'd want mine defended.